Welcome to Skim This. The start of our show this week might sound like the start of our show last week. So we wanted to take a step back and look at the state of gun violence in America and what's changed and what hasn't. Then it's that time of year again. I'm ready to But watching other kids party during a global pandemic is making us feel like our parents. You kids with your loud music and your Dan Fogelberg. Later, we'll hit the headlines from this week's news and call up a doctor friend to ask about a health condition a lot of women face, but often takes a long time to get diagnosed. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. Let's skim this. Another week in the United States, another mass shooting. On Monday, a man killed 10 people at a supermarket in Boulder, Colorado. News that reached many of us as we were only beginning to mourn the eight people killed last week in a series of shootings around Atlanta. Obviously, these events are uniquely tragic, but we wouldn't be giving you the context on why this week's news matters if we didn't point out a few broader patterns about guns and gun violence in the U.S. First, frequent mass shootings are the norm in the United States. By some definitions, the rate of mass shootings has slowed since the start of the pandemic. But while mass shootings declined, overall gun violence in the U.S. reached a record high, claiming the lives of 19,379 people, according to one nonprofit that tracks gun violence in the U.S. And that figure doesn't include gun-related suicides, which in an average year kill over 20,000 Americans too. Second, these gun violence trends are especially concerning because Americans bought a record number of guns last year, including reportedly more than 8 million Americans who bought a gun for the first time. Many gun owners say they only intend to use their gun for self-defense, but there's little evidence to prove that's how most guns are actually used. A 2015 study involving data from the CDC and FBI found that assaults involving a gun occurred almost seven times as often in states with the most guns compared to those with the least. Gender also plays a role here. Guns in America make intimate partner violence deadly. Granted, this statistic is over a decade old, but women are roughly eight times more likely to be killed as the result of domestic violence when there's a gun in their home. The third piece of context is that men are overwhelmingly more likely to carry out a mass shooting than women. There are a number of possible explanations for this, but experts have observed that many men who carried out mass murders felt their masculinity had been diminished through things like rejection by women or by financial setbacks. And instead of processing those emotions internally, men are more likely to direct their animosity toward women or other frustrations outward. Addressing those patterns won't be easy, but the longer they go unaddressed, whether it's in school, at home, in counseling, or in portrayals of men in the media, America's deadly relationship with guns will likely continue. So that's a lot of context. Are there any signs a new presidential administration could try to shake things up? I don't need to wait another minute, let alone an hour, to take common sense steps that will save the lives in the future and to urge my colleagues in the House and Senate to act. On Tuesday, President Biden held a press conference on the shooting in Colorado and made a direct call for new gun control laws. 
He specifically called for closing loopholes on background checks and for a ban on assault weapons. Both of those proposals are overwhelmingly popular among Americans. A Pew survey two years ago even found that about half of Republicans approve of banning assault weapons, and 82% of Republicans favor tightening rules around background checks. But in the U.S. Senate, that doesn't count for much. Several of the Republican senators that Democrats would need to pass gun reform said this week it's unlikely they'll buy what Biden is selling. And even West Virginia Democrat Joe Manchin has said, don't count him in either. Which means even the incremental proposals coming out of Washington are unlikely to pass. Though the same polling data we referenced earlier could show that change is within reach, eventually. Americans aged 18 to 29 are the most in favor of making gun laws stricter than they are today. All right, let's get to a couple of the headlines from this week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up, Israel held another election this week, and spoiler alert, there probably won't be a clear winner. Here's the context. If you're having deja vu, you're not alone. That's because this is Israel's fourth election in two years. The reason? No candidate, including current Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, has been able to get enough of a majority in parliament to actually form and hold on to control of a government. So that means people are heading to the polls again and again, hoping for decisive results. But the fourth time might not be the charm. And based on the election results so far, it's unlikely Netanyahu has the support he'll need to form a government. Making it possible a fifth election is in the cards. Okay, our next headline has also become a meme. In Egypt, one of the world's most important shipping lanes, the Suez Canal, is blocked by one of the largest container ships in the world. This enormous container ship ran aground right in the middle of the canal and is now causing a bit of a traffic jam. This is bad news for trade. The Suez Canal is one of the most important shipping lanes in the world. Around 12% of global seaborne trade flows through the canal each year, including goods like oil, natural gas, and consumer goods. And now, because of this rather inconvenient blockage, over 100 ships are now stuck. And with no end in sight, every passing hour is costing hundreds of millions of dollars in economic losses. All right, next headline. What we continue to learn is that there's no level of status and there's no accomplishment or power that will protect you from the clutches of inequality. The context? That was soccer star Megan Rapino testifying to Congress this week on Equal Pay Day. That date marks how many extra days into the year women have to work to make as much as men did in the previous calendar year. It's frustrating to have to keep marking this occasion, but a few things have changed over the last year. One law firm found that employers are looking more closely than ever at differences in pay in an attempt to address systemic inequities. And on the political side, three states, California, Colorado, and Illinois, now legally require employers to report pay data. So while progress is slow on closing the gender pay gap, it's not at a standstill. Next headline. On Wednesday, Virginia became the 23rd U.S. state and the first Southern state to abolish the death penalty. Here's why it matters. Southern states have historically used the death penalty more frequently than other U.S. regions. And it's a punishment Virginia's Governor Ralph Northam says has been used overwhelmingly against Black Americans. 
Virginia has carried out the second highest number of executions of any U.S. state. So reform advocates hope this move to ban the death penalty will lead other states to follow suit. All right, last headline. Georgia, Indiana, Texas, and Louisiana are now telling residents, if you're over 16 and want a vaccine, step on up and make an appointment. Here's what you need to know. These states are joining West Virginia, Alaska, Utah, and Mississippi in offering vaccines to anyone who wants one. And with any luck, they'll be joined by lots of other states soon, as the White House aims to vaccinate every adult by the end of May. Spring break has always been about letting loose. But over the last week, some people took that to the extreme. This is the heart of South Beach's entertainment district, where the mayor says things have gotten out of control. City of Miami Beach is currently under a state of emergency. People are just out here enjoying the beach, and you know, it's a good vibe. Corona's over, winter's over. And Miami has the highest positivity rate of any large metro area over the last week. The U.S. keeps vaccinating millions of people each day, and that's great. But images of thousands of people gathering in large groups without masks are sparking concerns that people are letting their guard down too early. As we see these two trends basically going in opposite directions, we wanted to know what's going to happen next. I think that what you're seeing is that, you know, similar to what we've seen in other surges, there are parts of the country where the cases are still dropping and there are others where cases are increasing or have plateaued. That's Dr. Nahid Bedelia. She's an infectious disease physician and the medical director of the Special Pathogens Unit at Boston Medical Center. A year ago, flattening the curve or seeing a plateauing of new infections was a good thing. But now we should be doing way better. That's also of concern. I mean, they plateau because you're expecting with the vaccine for both the cases, the hospitalizations and deaths to continue to go down. Luckily, over the last week, new data from the CDC shows COVID hospitalizations are starting to go down. Though Dr. Bedelia still worries there could be several bumps in the road before the U.S. hits herd immunity. One is this idea that people will change their behavior, let down their guard, either with vaccine or even before that, when they see others around them get vaccinated because they'll say, well, I'm young and I don't have to change, you know, I can change my behavior because everybody else is vaccinated. The other parts that may be barriers are people who are hesitant by getting the vaccine. So we have a large demand right now, but maybe we go through that demand and hit a more cautious group. And even if the U.S. reaches herd immunity, Dr. Bedelia says a slow vaccine rollout in other countries means new COVID strains could keep popping up and making us sick. So we're not out of the woods. But let's be honest, there's a big difference between rushing to Miami Beach pretending COVID isn't a thing and just wanting to enjoy spring. So we asked Dr. Bedelia for some doctor-approved ways to enjoy the nicer weather while still being as safe as possible. The first thing I want to make sure we say is that being outside is safe for you. You know, as long as you don't gather in large groups and let down your guard and you keep the masks on in large groups outside, you're totally fine. Go out for that hike, you know, get out there, um, have picnics, socially distanced picnics. Those are totally safe. The trouble, though, is that I think that many of our governors have opened indoor capacity in many scenarios. And, and I think that's the worrisome part. That's where you're going to see the most amount of transmission. And the concern is that people throughout this outbreak have taken what is allowed as a signal of what is safe. 
And so if, if governors say indoor capacity is 100% and you don't need to wear a mask, people will see that as, okay, well, the pandemic is over and change their behavior. And that sort of compounds the already existing pandemic fatigue, you know, I think then that's what's going to hurt us. Point taken. Most governors aren't medical doctors. And while it's great to get out and support local restaurants, research shows lifting bans on indoor dining accelerates the spread of COVID. So it's better to keep things outdoors. And there are ways to make that as safe as possible. I find that if you go outdoor dining, it's always good to call the restaurants ahead to see how far apart they're spacing their tables. I have done outdoor dining and I generally do that just to get a better sense of whether I'll walk into a situation where people are back to back. And so you're, you know, you can smell people's perfume. They're sitting right next to you. So clearly you're going to be taking in any kind of virus they're putting out. Finally, we wanted to know about carrots and sticks. You know, the difference between rewarding people for doing what's right and punishing them for doing what's wrong. Last week in Washington, Dr. Fauci and Republican Senator Rand Paul kind of got into it during a congressional hearing over this exact point. You want to get rid of vaccine hesitancy? Tell them they can quit wearing their mask after they get the vaccine. You want people to get the vaccine? Give them a reward instead of telling them that the nanny state's going to be there for three more years and you got to wear a mask forever. People don't want to hear it. There's no science behind it. Well, let me just state for the record that masks are not theater. The two of them went on like that for a while. It was messy. But we wanted to know from Dr. Bedelia, what about the argument that after 13 months of quarantining, people might benefit from hearing more about what they can do when they play by the rules? After all, if the biggest problem we could soon face is convincing everyone to get vaccinated, should we start using more carrots to win people over? Dr. Bedelia's answer was, yeah, maybe. One thing I hope to see from the CDC is update on travel for vaccinated folks and potentially more information in terms of other activities that they could do. You know, maybe they may say, hey, it's much safer for you to go indoor dining if you're vaccinated um, versus not. But the carrots may may lie on the power of these vaccines and, and what the CDC can do in terms of changing their guidelines to allow more leeway for people who are vaccinated to do activities that they weren't able to do before. So far, we haven't heard anything about the CDC doing just that, but we'll let you know if and when they do. Stepping back, we realized that our conversation with Dr. Bedelia was the 40th COVID interview we've aired on Skim This. And most of those have been pretty depressing. And while Dr. Bedelia hardly gave us a doctor's note to go do whatever we want, it's nice to start hearing that so long as we make thoughtful decisions about what's safe, she thinks we can simultaneously turn the page on COVID and start enjoying certain events we didn't get to enjoy last year. The way that you thread it is that you you try to keep as many of those events outdoors as possible. It really is the indoor capacity. You want to reopen, open outdoor arenas, keep distancing, you know, work on that first. That allows us to get back to normalcy while keeping that ventilation and distancing and things like that. Silver linings. We'll take them. What do your food and music choices say about you? On Food 52's new podcast, Counter Jam, Museum of Food and Drink founding director Peter J. Kim explores culture through food and music. You'll hear about musical legend Keyless's favorite falafel spot in NYC, Afrobeat pioneer Femi Kuti's take on Nigerian cuisine, and Chef Roy Choi's story of how a Korean bean paste destroyed a high school romance. 
You'll celebrate food culture, debunk stereotypes, and discover new tunes from the show's toe-tapping soundtrack. Find Counter Jam wherever you listen. A couple of weeks ago, you might remember that we asked you to... I can name that tune. In five, four, three, two, and one. It's the new name that tune, baby. We're bringing it back. But we play a skim this version, where you see if you can match a piece of audio to a news story. And if you win, you get the satisfaction of knowing you beat us at our own game. All right, roll tape. The fund is supposed to be used for housing and economic development programs. The program would provide $25,000 to a small number of eligible black residents for home repairs, down payments, or mortgage payments. This program should end up going to 16 families. Props to you if you've already figured this out. If not, here's another hint. The Chicago suburb of Evanston is taking an unprecedented step to set right its past racial wrongs. Evanston is the first city to offer financial compensation, known as reparations. This week, Evanston, a Chicago suburb, became the first city in the U.S. to approve reparations for black residents. You've probably heard the term reparations before, but let's break down what exactly are reparations. The word means the act of making amends for a wrong or injury, and more specifically, the payment of damages. Civil rights advocates have spent decades arguing that the U.S. should use financial reparations to address the economic impacts of slavery and decades of racial discrimination following emancipation. The legacy of those practices, they say, make it way harder for Black Americans to build wealth, leading to the racial wealth gap we see now. So why is this coming up in a suburb of Chicago? Historically, Black residents in Evanston faced discrimination from banks and builders, and through public policy. They were effectively restricted to buying property on acceptable blocks, which researchers say by 1940 resulted in 95% of Evanston's Black residents being concentrated into one area of the city. Experts say that legacy of redlining, both in Evanston and around the U.S., has lasting impacts even now. But even among those who think something should be done, it hasn't been easy to agree on how to make reparations work. Which brings us to our next question. How is Evanston gonna pull this off? The program that passed on Monday will start distributing $400,000 in grants this summer to some of Evanston's Black residents, who could receive grants of up to $25,000 to fix up their homes or put towards a down payment on a new house. Longer term, the program aims to give out a total of $10 million over the next 10 years. That cash is coming from donations and a 3% tax on the sale of recreational marijuana. But only some Black residents are eligible. To qualify, recipients have to have lived in Evanston between 1919 and 1969 or been descended from someone who did. Any recipients also have to prove they or their direct relatives were subject to housing discrimination. Here was Evanston City Alderman Robin Rue Simmons, who proposed the reparations program, talking to Yahoo News. I introduced reparations as a way to advance tangible, measurable redress in the Black community, which had historically been disinvested and disenfranchised like every other city in America. Maybe this shouldn't come as a surprise, but not everyone's happy with the specific reparation measures Evanston is going with here. 
Members of the Black community have a couple of critiques of the current program. First, some say it's the federal government that should be addressing reparations, because it participated in slavery, and later had the power to force states to stop discriminatory practices, like refusing mortgages to Black buyers. So since the federal government had a hand in actively creating the racial wealth gap, it should be responsible for fixing that. Second, critics also say that any reparations program needs to be broader and address more than just housing or scholarship programs, since those are just two of many areas where Black people currently face discrimination that has deep historical roots. Here was William Sandy Darity, an economist and professor of public policy at Duke University on NBC News. We still find ourselves with mass incarceration, ongoing police executions of unarmed Blacks, we have a sustained process of discrimination in housing, credit, and employment markets. A separate criticism is that targeted social programs, like Evanston's housing grants, fail to give people the same autonomy as giving them cash would, and as a result, perpetuate racist stereotypes that Black Americans can't handle their money. Finally, it's worth noting that public support for reparations, although growing, still isn't high. A Gallup poll from 2019 found that only 29% of Americans support the idea. So in addition to the debate over how reparations could be more effective, there's a large group of Americans who aren't on board at all. Still, some advocates and lawmakers feel the benefits outweigh the critiques. So what's next? Evanston could help guide cities in states like Massachusetts, Vermont, and Rhode Island, which are already working on their own reparations initiatives. And experts say Evanston's move could add momentum for a federal bill that's already been introduced into Congress to study and develop a wider reparations program. Even if the prospect of Congress passing a national reparations bill seems like a long shot, advocates like Alderman Simmons and Evanston say they're prepared for a long fight. It'll take generations. It took us 402 years to get to this place in history, to get to this place of our, our racial divide um, based on egregious crimes against the humanity of Black people. This should be inspiration. There is no blueprint because every city's injury and history is going to be different. March is Endometriosis Awareness Month. Endometriosis, or endo for short, is a painful gynecological disorder that at least 10% of women aged 15 to 44 in the U.S. suffer from, most often in silence. And some doctors estimate that number could be way higher. We had a lot of questions about endo, and it turns out so did many of you. So we wanted to get them answered by calling up Dr. Natalie Crawford. I am a fertility physician and founder of Fora Fertility in Austin, Texas. This is us asking for a friend. So let's start with the basics. Can you skim what endometriosis is? The skim on endometriosis is that it is very hard to understand. There's not been much put towards understanding or researching on this disease, but it impacts a ton of women. 10% of all women have endometriosis. I like to think of this as an autoimmune and an inflammatory condition. This is when your body is attacking itself and you get implants of tissue that is very similar to the endometrium or the inside of the uterine lining in areas that are outside the uterus and your body attacks those. That leads to pain and infertility 
and it's really hard to diagnose, which makes the disease even tougher. Is there any connection between your genetics and endometriosis? I like to think of endometriosis as there's some genetic link. If your mom or sister has it, you are more likely to get it. And there's some environmental condition that must occur in order to flip the switch on. It's almost like inheriting a genetic link, but something has to happen to turn the switch on. We see women with endometriosis are much more likely to have other autoimmune diseases themselves or in their families, like autoimmune thyroid disease, celiac disease, lupus, things like that. What are the common symptoms of endometriosis? Number one is pain. And pain is usually related to your cycle in some form or fashion. This is usually pain with your period. So if your period is so bad that you are calling in sick to school or to work, you're canceling plans with friends, it's interfering with your life. Also, we see pain with intercourse. So in certain positions or with certain aspects of intercourse, you have deep internal pain. We can also see GI changes specifically around the period. So if you're throwing up on your period, having diarrhea, extremely bloated, women with endometriosis get misdiagnosed with GI diseases over and over again. The average time to diagnosis for a woman who has endo is seven to 10 years, years. Yeah, I wanna talk about why endo is misdiagnosed so much. I honestly believe the reason why it takes so long to get diagnosed when you have endometriosis is that society is not comfortable talking about women's health issues. And so women are stigmatized about talking about their period. They have a hard time verbalizing exactly when they are having symptoms and what they are because we're told to not talk about our period. We're told this is something normal that everybody goes through and there leads to a lot of internal blame. Oh, it just must be me. Everybody else is fine when they have their periods. Something must be wrong with me. Maybe I have a low pain tolerance. And then that gets amplified by providers not taking it seriously. I'll say the second part of this answer is that you can only diagnose endometriosis with surgery. So it is difficult because things that are easy to diagnose by taking your blood or doing an easy test, that's going to get you a diagnosis much faster. Getting to the point where you go to surgery, patients don't always want to go to surgery. There's risks, there's money, there's time off of work. Your symptoms have to get so bad that you're willing to go to surgery to try to figure out if that's what you have or not. One of the questions that we got a lot, obviously, was how do I know that I have it? And so if you are having this kind of pain, what are the first questions you recommend that someone starts asking their doctor to get to the bottom of whether or not this is something that they suffer from? So you should always have an OBGYN who is taking care of your health that you really trust. And if you go to them and say, I'm having very painful periods, I've read about endometriosis, I'm very concerned I have this. Are you capable of diagnosing this for me or do you need to refer me to somebody else? Even if your OBGYN who does your pap smears doesn't feel comfortable with this, she should have somebody that she feels very comfortable sending you to so that you can get the help that you need. But do not be afraid to be your own advocate and ask questions and require answers. And if you're getting dismissed, you can change doctors. You are completely allowed to change to a new healthcare team who is going to take your concerns seriously. If I think I have endometriosis or I've been diagnosed, what do I need to know about my fertility and pregnancy? Endometriosis to me is living on borrowed time. The disease, if you don't do anything about it, will get worse and worse 
and chronic inflammation over time leads to destruction. Imagine if you had a scar on your arm and you just picked that scab off every single day from that cut, you're gonna be left with a wound that's much bigger and uglier than if you just had left it alone. That's essentially what endo is doing inside your body and it impacts your ovaries. And we often see women with endometriosis have a lower ovarian reserve much earlier than their peers. If you know you have endometriosis, you should be more proactive in your fertility. If you're purposefully delaying time to conception, that, that's great. Chase your dreams, go after your career, but you should give a strong consideration to egg freezing because that way you're preventing that loss of fertility from happening. You alluded to ways that women can reduce their pain and get treatment for endometriosis. I'd love if you could just walk me through what some of those treatments look like. So the number one thing you're going to see when it comes to treatment for endometriosis is going to be a combination or a long-term game plan of surgical management and medication therapy. We really look at people and try to get down to what is your goal? Because if your goal is getting pregnant right now, or is your goal treating your pain, we may do really, really different things. But the combination of things that we can do, it can include surgery excisional surgery where you take the lesions out. And then there's medication that can prevent that estrogen rise and fall. There's different ways that these medications work that can try to keep that estrogen nice and low. And sometimes it's as simple as birth control pills. Have surgery beyond birth control pills until you're ready to get pregnant. For some women, that's great. For others, that's not great at all. So it really needs a personalized approach. I want to go back to something you said earlier, which is 10% of women roughly have endometriosis, but we know so little about it. It just feels like a big enough swath of the population has it. I'm curious why there are still so many unknowns. I love this question. Women's health has been underfunded for research extremely to a crazy level. If I told you something impacted 10% of the population or 10% of men, we would know all about it. We actually think the 10% number is probably pretty low because of that surgical diagnosis. I think the tide is changing as social media is making endometriosis more known. We are talking about it. Women are sharing their stories. Other people are hearing these symptoms. We're talking about our periods. And one thing I always say is once you know what is normal, then you can know what is abnormal and when to get help. Dr. Crawford, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks so much, Alex. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by Luke Vargas and me, Alex Carr, with additional help from Peter Bonaventure and Kira Long. Our head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, for more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com.